Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Movie Review Podcast. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we got something special in store for you. Thanks to two of our sponsors, Mac Weldon and MyBookie, we're able to provide all of our Clatchers what normally only our Patreon members get. Yes, this is a release of exclusive Patreon content, specifically our movie coverage of Jurassic World 2 Fallen Kingdom. Summer blockbuster, dinosaurs... Long-anticipated follow-up to the first Jurassic World. I mean, come on, who doesn't love dinosaurs, right? If you haven't seen this movie yet, definitely go check it out, and then come here and listen to the podcast. We cover everything from our thoughts on all of the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World movies. We rank the movies in the franchise. We go over the background of all the dinosaurs, and we dig into the plot, including our thoughts on this movie and how it stacks up. And if you like this movie review, go head over to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, and join the rest of the crew with monthly movie reviews just like this one and bonus podcasts where we talk about anything from science to dogs to technology and things in the news. We go all over the place and we just have a ball. There are three tiers, so you can pick the one that's right for you. Tier 1 gives you access to exclusive community chat boards and discount on our gear. Tier 2 gives you that, plus a monthly bonus episode. Everything Jason just spoke about, plus our fun bloopers and behind-the-scenes information. And Tier 3 gives you all of that, plus a monthly movie review. We put polls up, including movies that are big at the theater right now, plus some fun throwbacks. Occasionally, we cover the Harry Potter series. You vote, we watch the movie, and then we give you really in-depth information on it. And if all of that wasn't enough, we also have monthly raffles. Thanks to an endowment from a sponsor each month, we have a raffle where you could win one item of CKC merchandise. One new member that's joined that month plus one existing member will both win a raffle. And you get to choose from any item that's in our store. There are no restrictions on that. We have t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, coffee mugs. If you want to see what's available, go head over to coffeeclatchcrew.com and click on the gear page. And in fact, just go check out the website. See what's going on with CKC. Check out the Patreon tiers. Thanks again to Mac Weldon and MyBookie for making this possible. And tell your friends. You know you have friends out there who love Jurassic World just as much as we do. If every one of you tell three of your friends, we can make this army bigger and maybe we can take out the dinosaurs. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew. Man, that music's kind of intense. <laughs> Patreon exclusive movie review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing... Jurassic World 2 Fallen Kingdom. Dinosaurs! <laughs> this was produced by Frank Marshall, Patrick Crowley, and Belen Atienza, and directed by J.A. Bayona. IMDb is giving it a 6.7, Rotten Tomatoes a 60%, and Metacritic a 59%. They say Fallen Kingdom adds another set piece packed entry to the blockbuster franchise, although genuinely thrilling moments are an increasingly short supply. Hmm. I totally disagree. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to walk a fine line tonight because I did enjoy this summer blockbuster. It indeed did fulfill being a summer blockbuster. Genuinely thrilling moments in short supply? No. There were many. Many thrilling moments. Beautifully done. My issue, which we'll dig into in a little bit, is the characters. 
Okay, see, my issue was with narrative. Because I felt that the last Jurassic World did a fantastic job of recognizing it had been a while since the Jurassic Park movies, tying in the first three, but creating a whole new world, so Mm. to speak, for us. It was very self-contained. It had some exciting plot points, thinking about the park when it's actually running up and going in all its glory, but also set you up for this next one. This one, however, felt like it struggled to pull in pieces it had to make up from the past because they weren't there in the story and rush you off the island forward to the mainland to set up what's going to happen in the next movie. So they kind of forgot to just enjoy the moment of what was happening in this movie. And that felt it difficult for me to kind of follow along with their narrative structure. I'm with you on that. Narrative as well, for sure. But I kind of folded narrative and characters together because I felt like the characters lacked narrative. Okay. So I'm with you on that. Just like you were saying, Jurassic World 1 did a fantastic job of remembering its roots. It answered the question that we had, what if they did open the park? Boom, they throw us right in there with more spectacular views because technology is better. Look what we can do now. And they answer it. We have a park. It's open. People have been going. It's been doing well. Actually, it's been open so long that they're trying to kind of reinvent themselves to keep people coming. The allure of dinosaurs is actually getting old. Yeah, to be honest with you, I think they would have done better to keep that going for a little while. I wouldn't have minded a number two in the park. They went so quick to its downfall in order to set you up for the next one. They also had immediately likable characters. They almost had to bring in an entirely new cast, and yet we felt connected to them. We were excited about what was happening. Here again, what you're saying about the characters, it felt very piecemeal because we had characters connected to the island, connected to the mainland, connected to this dinosaur protection group. There were so many elements. They just didn't all seem to fit together at the right times for me. Well, you talk about narrative. They made up a story. They bring in this character, Benjamin Lockwood, And they say, hey, he was best friends with Hammond until they had a fallout. That's why you never knew him. But, uh, you know. He was always there, though. Don't worry about it. And now he's dying and he cares so much about his friend's vision. This is why he's involved now. It just didn't feel right. But yeah, and then they bring him in just to kill him off. Like, we just needed him to set pieces up. There was a lot of things that were kind of tricky. There were some things that were really excellent, though, and beautifully done. The dinosaurs looked amazing Mm. in this one more than ever and really going into the backstory of kind of what kinds of dinosaurs they are, what does it mean for them to exist as creatures now that we've brought them into this world. The the visuals of the island falling apart were amazing. Absolutely. Isla Nublar looked beautiful. The destruction of it looked beautiful, if I can say that. Yeah. It's kind of weird. My issues were when they went back. They took what we know about Jurassic Park, vast lands, beautiful landscapes, and look at these huge, fast, scary dinosaurs on there. And they bring them into a home. Granted, it's a huge house, but still. The rest of the movie takes place inside of a tight room or tight rooms, giving you a claustrophobic feel, making the dinosaurs feel less immense. And giving us a scary movie kind of feel. Well, which is exactly what J.A. Bayonia wanted to do, right? He talks about this, that through the story he was trying to tell, making these creatures captive in this space kind of imprisons them in a way they haven't been before, even on the island. 
He wanted you to feel that. I get that and I appreciate it, but yet again, I wish there had been a little more time spent on the island and a little less time spent on the mainland. The structure of it just felt a little weird. It was dragging on at the point that we were at the Lockwood estate. So it's worth mentioning the main premise of this movie takes place six years after the events of Jurassic World, where Mount Sebo, a dormant volcano, has become active on the island of Isla Nublar. Owen and Claire, back again, mount a campaign to rescue the remaining dinosaurs from this extinction-level event. Throughout this entire thing, we get a voiceover from Dr. Ian Malcolm. Jeff Goldblum is not really present in this movie, but still giving us those overall warnings of what's yet to come. And they just sort of take it from there. It was relatively long, 128 minutes. But it didn't feel long. The time did not bother me. Money-wise, they had a budget of $170 million. So far, they've grossed $325 million. Yeah, they're going to make their money back, for sure. This is the most expensive Jurassic Universe movie, if you want to call it that. The first three Jurassic Parks were $63 million, $73, and then $93 million. The last Jurassic World was $150 million, and this one, $170 million. As far as how the people and the critics are accepting it, no surprise, the very first Jurassic Park remains the highest, with a Rotten Tomatoes of 92% and IMDb 8.1. They took a dive on the second two Jurassic Parks, 53% and a 6.5, 50% and a 5.9. The world came back up for it for the last Jurassic World one. They were back up to 71% and a 7 Well, that makes sense because we haven't seen it in so long. We had Chris Pratt, who is hot in Hollywood right now, and the storyline made sense. The innate issue they have with Jurassic Park and Jurassic World is the fact that in a sequel, you have to make it where humans are so dumb that they're willing to try again. Let's try it on a different island. And then you're you're like seeing the same issue unfold. And that's how I felt with Jurassic Park 2 and 3. Although I did enjoy elements of it, and of course I wanted to watch it because dinosaurs, duh. (laughs) It's never going to get old. It's something that's very difficult, and I don't have an answer for it. If I was the writer and the studio came to me and said, we want to do number two, here's a shitload of money, make it work. I don't have an answer to how can we make it where the same issue happens again without making the humans so dumb where they, let's just try again. They didn't learn from the past. And with Fallen Kingdom, they kind of sidestepped that, which was good. It wasn't like, oh, they tried again. They had the cataclysmic event of Mount Sibo, the dormant volcano, actually erupting, which was great. The storyline, I think they could have made work. It's a few more issues that I had. And let's bring up characters, because I'm kind of sidestepping it. Let's just throw it in there. One of the issues I have with a lot of movies is the bad guy. How do we set up an interesting bad guy? And we've talked about this in the past with movies. We've had movies where we were like, I really enjoyed the bad guy. And we had other movies, many more other movies, where the bad guy just falls flat. There's not enough time to create depth, to create any meaning to what they're doing besides just money-loving or self-indulgent. And this was the case. This bad guy didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't really give me a twist. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And he was just one-dimensional. And that bothered me tremendously. Well, you're talking about Eli Mills, right? Who is the right-hand man, the assistant to Benjamin Lockwood. So we had to invent Benjamin Lockwood. Mm -hmm. Then we had to invent this assistant of his who's sort of overseeing his affairs. And basically, yes, greedy, money-hungry. And let me stop you there. They invented him. What threw me off is 
they made it where Claire knows him well, which threw me because I was like, shit, am I supposed to know him well? And we don't find out how. She just says she remembers him and they leave it at that. It would have tied it in nicely if they just had a bit of an explanation there. He's supposed to come off as nice at first, but you can clearly see right through that something else is happening. I'll tell you what, though. I like the secondary antagonist bringing back Dr. Henry Wu, which they could have really gone more in depth. He's always been the geneticist where there's more to his story and filling in the blanks on why he's doing this for Eli. Well, we love B.D. Wong because of Mr. Robot and all the other things. So we're a little biased, but yes, I feel like every movie, he's the controller behind everything. He's the creator, but he's always just in there for a few scenes and then runs away. And why is he doing it when he knows there's been so many problems? If you give him a motivation Mm. and he's behind all of that, then that's more interesting to me. They pushed him to the side a bit. He still works. You also could have gone so much further with Toby Jones, the guy that's pushing this auction to happen. Yes, you have a background that they intend to weaponize the dinosaurs, which, okay, maybe makes sense. But even these people, as dumb as they might be, the rich backers that are coming to purchase them have to understand that that's not something that's going to be completely in their control. I don't even think it adds up that they would want them to weaponize unless you have something a little further along, tech where you can really control them. And they were trying to get there by saying they were going to put parts of blue into these newly manufactured dinosaurs so that they could teach them they would be more obedient. Mm. But even blue wasn't totally 100% there yet. I mean, all those dots don't connect. Now, where they started kind of touching upon something interesting was the technology they had pulled out of this in order to clone and Lockwood was onto the idea of cloning people, which is how he gets this granddaughter back. Apparently, that's why him and John Hammond had a falling out. Also, more backstory we didn't know about. Hammond wasn't for the cloning of people. But if that was kind of the underlying goal, mm. that could get really interesting. I, yeah. I don't know. They're not quite making everything land. I agree with you. And I feel like that's the setup for next movie. They'll go deeper into that. And I'm thinking... Now, this may not be a smart thought. I might just be blinded by my hopes, but I'm thinking Jeff Goldblum will be more integral in Jurassic World 3, and that's the setup. I can't help but keep thinking that this is just a big, expensive setup. Yes. But you're right. There's a lot of things that they went, they kind of tried to brush into the storyline so that they can fall back on that next movie. Okay, what about the social discussion that they were trying to put in there? with Jeff Goldblum. That's very important. But they didn't have enough time to really sculpt that out and make us think about it. And they made the characters so dumb that we felt like they wouldn't even be thinking about it. And what I'm talking about is, and I'll pull it directly from The Verge because they said it perfectly. If an animal is brought back from extinction, should it then be protected as an endangered species? And further, if something is created by man, does it have the same right to exist as something created by nature? So those are very deep questions, and those are things that we've touched upon many times because of movies and shows that we've been covering. Westworld, if man created these AIs, these robots, should they have the same rights as us? The world has been questioning that now that AI is getting more and more robust, if you can call it robust, if you can call Siri robust, but you know what I mean. That's a question that I think humankind will have eventually. Well, and his bigger point is about the natural order of things. So 
even if you take God out of it, if this is just science or a plan for the world, the dinosaurs had their chance and they went extinct for a reason. Now we brought them back and there's multiple indicators within these movies that nature is trying to take them out again and we're not listening. That happens at a couple of points throughout this movie where they stop and think to themselves, maybe this is the time and we should just let them go. And the people we consider to be good, our heroes, are the ones that keep deciding to save them. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, what is the matter with them? How do they not see this is a huge danger to us? Now you're putting them back at the top of the food chain, and that's going to create possible endangered species level events for humans. And other animals. Right. When they were thinking, maybe put them on another island and just don't interfere, there's a way you can see the logic of that. It still has about a million problems to itself, but having them coexisting with us on a landmass, certainly not a good idea. The part at the end is, is almost laughable where they're letting them go at the estate. But we're getting deep into plot now, so let's back it up for a minute. We have so much background information to share. And I want to start off with the company itself, InGin, and the island that we're starting out on. In the books, the fictional company InGin is based in California. Most of their research, though, takes place on the two fictional islands of Isla Sorna and Isla Nublar, near Costa Rica, which is leased to Hammond's Corporation. So Isla Nublar is the main one where the park exists. That's where the first Jurassic Park was. In movies two and three, we go to Isla Sorna, which was the site B. If you pull it up on a map, there's a couple of islands next to Sorna, And it made me think that when they're talking about moving the dinosaurs to another safe location, maybe that's where they were looking at. But Isla Nublar is completely by itself. It means clouded island in Spanish. This is because the steam vents and ocean currents cause overcast conditions, and there's a cloud forest around the island most of the time. It's located off the west coast of Costa Rica in the books and was a relatively small island, 40 minutes by helicopter, from San Jose, the capital. It has a reverse teardrop shape. It's eight miles long, three miles wide, and 22 square miles total. It's not a true island, but a volcanically active seamount or underwater island thrust up past the surface. This leads a lot of people to wonder why they chose this island as the place where they were going to have the main park. Even though the volcano was dormant, there's always that possibility. You know, why did they not place it on another island? Hawaii. In real world. <laughs> or one of these other islands that we see. No, I mean Hawaii right now. The volcanoes have been going oh, off. Oh, yeah. correct. Yes. Now, looking at the island itself, the south side has natural steam vents where there's flat plains indicating ongoing volcanic activity. And this enables a geothermal power plant in the northern mountains. At the center is a huge artificial lagoon that feeds into a river. It flows north and ends in a waterfall, masking the entrance to a utility tunnel. The park itself is built in the eastern and central areas. So if you pull up a map of this, you can see where the locations are for certain types of dinosaurs, for the structures they were building. And of course, the last Jurassic World revives Isla Nublar as the main setting for the first time since Jurassic Park. Which I absolutely loved. When Chris Pratt runs into the main Jurassic Park Visitor Center that's now in disarray. And when I mean Maine, Maine from the original, mm-hmm. oh, my heart was like, yes! There's a lot of tiebacks to other movies that we're going to talk about later on. And that's something I did enjoy. They still did some tiebacks. I'm an easy human. You give me a call back to something I loved, my brain 
automatically produces dopamine. I'm like, yes, I know that. (laughs) Well, everything is bigger and better in this movie. There are 20 different species of dinosaurs, 14 herbivores, and six carnivores. We will go over all of them in a few minutes because that's a fun part of this, right? Well, don't get me wrong. I feel a little bad now because I wasn't supposed to go this hard right from the beginning, (laughs) but I wanted to get everything out. I did enjoy watching the movie. It's Jurassic World. It's Jurassic Park, for God's sakes. If a friend said, hey, should I go see this? I'd say, absolutely. You need to. I will never not see a Jurassic Park movie. And I'm always going to get excited about it. Even if it doesn't completely live up in certain ways, it's going to be fun to watch. A huge part of that is the dinosaurs. And they do feel like they get better every single time. For this movie, they were created with a combination of animatronics and CGI. Just like in movie one. Exactly. Just like the Harry Potter crew from Jurassic Park's crew to do a mixture. Remember that? Yeah. And that's what they did with the snake. This is what they were basing it off of his work with the dinosaurs. A lot of credit for this goes to Neil Scanlon, who is the creature effects creative supervisor, and Vickery and Wook visual effects supervisors. For Blue alone, and this is one of their most complex dinosaurs to build, The movements required 15 puppeteers hidden beneath him during filming to make it move properly. Blue cost half a million dollars to make. The animatronic could sweat. Its eyes would dilate if hit by light. It had pulsing veins and a reptile textured skin. Wow. Yeah, they said it was completely realistic. The people that worked with it, the most realistic creature they had worked with so far. Right down to the creators wanted the eyes to look like they were conveying emotion, so they studied the physics of how light transmits through eyes and focuses. Blue, come with me. I told Steven Spielberg that the heart of the story is about Blue. I don't have clean instruments. She's hemorrhaging. The sequence where Blue has been injured, the actors, they just completely engaged with it. We worked with the vet to get that sort of authentic feel, which then allowed the actors and actresses to come in and just play the scene as if it were a real entity. Like the snoring. I've worked with crocodiles, elephants, rhino, lions, leopards. So all that work has fed directly into this scene with Blue. That's perfect because you then... It's actually quite emotional watching all the subtle movements that the puppeteers are doing and the reaction of the cast. It brings a tear to your eye, and they really bring her to life. We are beneath the table on which rests Blue, and each of these levers, you see there are so many of them, each one controls a different portion of her, from each of her fingers to articulating her wrists, shoulders, elbows, her jaws, her mouth, her tongue, her eyes. There's a whole team of dudes down here. Hey, guys. So if I lift this up, watch. If I go like this, like its hand is moving or something right now, that probably just costs production $100,000 in like three days. Who knows? Whoa, yeah, great, okay. We created sequences that were built specifically to be able to use animatronics in a way that we couldn't in the first Jurassic World. They did extensive research, not just for that, but for other areas as well. They consulted with paleontologists to accurately depict the dinosaurs. They referred to elephants and rhinos to determine how they should move or behave. For advice on veterinary procedures, they sought a vet surgeon who had experience with African wildlife. And Cranston also worked with the actors to teach them how to perform such procedures. Think about when they did the blood transfusion, and he had to show Pratt and Howard how to make that look real. 
They also consulted volcanologists on how a volcano might erupt and what that would look like. Scanlon and his team spent more than eight months at Pinewood Studios to work on all the creatures before they started filming with a crew of 35 people. Well, that definitely shows. I have no complaints when it comes to the dinosaurs, when it comes to that beautiful scene with the volcano erupting. And I have absolutely nothing but praise for how they made these dinosaurs have such feeling within them. One thing that's a positive and a negative with this movie is that I cared so much about the dinosaurs. That scene ending the first act with that lone Brachiosaurus standing there looking at the boat as the volcano erupts behind him. I was so teared up with emotion and you said you cried. Yes. Now, if you've listened to our Patreon cast, really any of our other podcasts, you can go back and take a look. I don't believe that I've said I've cried at any one of these movies or TV shows before. No, it's just me. It takes a lot to make me cry. You're normally a little bit more emotional during certain movies. Because I'm not dead inside. (laughs) I cried at that scene where they were leaving the Brachiosaurus behind. That's how effective they were. And it, it goes so far back. That's what really impresses me. This dinosaur is the first one we saw upon mm. entering the first Jurassic Park movie. Throughout all of them since then, they have made us emotionally connected to them. This is the species that represents everything good about Jurassic Park and what they're trying to do there, right? The peaceful herbivores that people yeah. want to come and marvel at that deserve a second chance in this world. In movie one, they were stranded and they were up on a tree and they were doing the jokes. What do you call a blind do- dinosaur? Do you think he saw us? Yes, exactly. And that's when the Brachiosaurus comes in and he's like, don't worry, don't worry. He's not going to hurt you. Just feed him this. It's so iconic. I will never forget that. Well, and there's a bunch of tiebacks. That's one of them. We do see the Brachiosaurus in this movie feeding off the tree much the same way we saw him in the first one. And so, of course, we're going to be upset when he gets left behind. Out of the manifest of dinosaurs they took off the island... I don't think it included any of them, which is so shocking to me. I could be wrong. We'd have to go back and look. I don't remember seeing them cage any of them. I don't remember seeing it on a list. So that could be the end of the Brachiosaurus. Mm, I don't know that for sure. You may be wrong on that, actually. I hope I am. (laughs) I think there was one. It just wasn't an adult one when they were stampeding out to try to get out at the end. To get on the boat, you mean? No, at the end to get out of the house. Oh, 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 out of the estate. Yes. Well, that would be marvelous. There is another one that looks a little bit like him. I think it's, oh, it starts with an A. I can't think of the name, but they also have long necks. So we'd have to kind of go back and investigate that. There's so many scenes when we see them in a cage. It made me feel horrible when Ken Wheatley, played by Ted Levine, the mercenary, the head mercenary, pulls a tooth from one of the dinosaurs on the truck in the flatbed. That felt so sad. And that dinosaur looked, it conveyed so much emotion right there. They did so well with that. To so many sections with these dinosaurs, I felt for them. So what I was saying a second ago where I said that was their strength and their weaknesses, I didn't give two shits what human died. Yeah. I cared about the dinosaurs and only the dinosaurs. And I think they struggled finding a balance with that. But then again, maybe they wanted us to feel that way. They have never humanized the dinosaurs to this extent if their narrative is we're taking them off the island because they deserve to be saved. We have to believe that. We have to buy it. 
And they started feeding those concepts last movie, obviously with Blue, who we're going to get to in more detail in a minute. Love you, Blue. But incredibly, unbelievably, with the T-Rex, we have started to like him and to feel for him. He is kind of the hero of the dinosaur kingdom, not just the big, scary monster that everyone fears. He saved our characters, characters, whether on purpose or not, last movie and this a couple of times. I love that concept, making the T-Rex the hero rather than the villain. It's a great tilt on the main concept of the original, and I thought that was so clever. Keep those going. Keep that rolling. But still dangerous. We can't fuck around with them. The creator said he's supposed to represent sin towards science. Every time we cross a red line, she, by the way, it's a she, Rexy, is there to remind us we're not doing the right thing. And I got that idea in Jurassic World 1. I wasn't sure if she was trying to save the crew because she was on their side in some way. Or more likely what I felt, she knew that the Indominus Rex represented something unnatural. This had been fabricated. It wasn't supposed to be there. It didn't belong within the chain of dinosaurs. And as the one who was at the very top, it was her responsibility to take that dinosaur out. And I think you saw a little bit of that in this one as well. So while we're talking about the T-Rex, Jason, I have 10 things that you didn't know about the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Let's do it. All right. The average length is 40 feet from head to tail, which is roughly the size of a school bus. Wow. The average height is 15 feet. The weight is nine tons, which is equivalent to three full-grown white rhinoceroses. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Her smell is excellent. She has parts of the brain developed for scent that are huge compared to other dinosaurs. And thus, when we see them genetically creating these new dinosaurs, new creatures, they're very often pulling from both the T-Rex and the raptor for their amazing qualities. And we do see the new Indoraptor sense of smell is out of control. Yeah, when I think of raptors, I think of pack animals like wolves. Very smart. Works together. Hunts. Yeah, whereas the T-Rex is kind of the lone. Um, Speed, she can run 10 miles per hour. Bite strength, 12,000 pounds, the most powerful of any terrestrial carnivore. Arm strength, you would think not much because her arms are so tiny, (laughs) but she could actually curl the equivalent of 400 pounds. They lived 65 million years ago in Western North America mostly. They are carnivores feeding on other dinosaurs, primarily the horned triceratops. And their lifespan was 28 years at the oldest recorded. And they do kind of harken back to that. Well, as we said, we're going to get into some of our other dinosaurs in just a minute. First, though, I have some trivia questions for you. Are you ready? Mm. Number one, this film features more animatronic dinosaurs than any of the previous. Do you know how many exactly? Not dinosaurs total, but ones they built as animatronics. 13. No. <laughs> Actually, lower. Oh, you, I just went You for overshot it. that a little. I ruined it. Well, five. But if you think of it this way, the previous film only used one. They had the T-Rex as a full-scale animatronic created using 3D printing and controlled through joysticks with the ability to breathe and move its head. Wow. And the first one I know was the sick Triceratops. Oh, yeah. Remember that scene? Oh. Do you know where the movie was filmed? And there were two locations other than the set. Well, Hawaii. Correct. 
they're all filmed there. That's where the island is. And Vegas? Well, there is a brief clip in Vegas, but it's kind of a trick question. Surprisingly enough, one of the other big spots was the UK. Oh. And it was filmed under the code name Ancient Futures. And finally, we know one of the most difficult scenes, at least for the actors, was the filming of the gyrosphere. Yeah. Where it fell off the cliff and into the water in real Such life. Such a fun scene. Yeah, in real life that was in a tank. How long do you think that took? At least a week. Correct. One yeah. week. And it required 85 crew members. Wow. It was pretty intense. There was a lot of backstories of what the actors went through during the filming of that. That underwater scene wasn't that long comparatively. It was very quick. Yeah. In real time. I believe Bryce Dallas Howard said she had to learn to scuba dive specifically for these scenes. Well, so good job. You did good on the trivia this time. Let's move into our characters. We're going to talk about our people first, and then we'll go to our dinosaurs. We actually had quite a few human characters, starting out with the return of two of our favorites, Owen Grady, played by Chris Pratt, a Navy veteran and former dinosaur trainer for Jurassic World. Okay, so Chris Pratt. I've said it in the past, I'll say it again. I love Chris Pratt. I want to be him. (laughs) It sounds so weird for an adult to say that, but... (laughs) There's so many qualities about him. Now, granted, I don't know him, know him, but I do follow him on social media and I've known his comedy career from way back when he was a chubby man. Mm-hmm. There's certain parts of him that remind him of me. Just silly, will say things that will, you know, can make him seem silly or stupid just so that everyone else will laugh and not care, you know? He's witty. He is very funny on the spot. Like just pulling quickly things yeah, to say and improving. Do you remember where you were the moment you saw me in Jurassic World? <laughs> and I, I truly love his dynamic, the way he plays off of Bryce Dallas Howard, and that's Claire Deering. It feels like a real relationship. Yes, in the first movie. I have to say in the second movie, it felt like there was less chemistry there. And to pull that even further, I felt like they didn't let Chris Pratt be funny like they did in the first one. The opening scenes, the few scenes in the beginning, you know, there was that character, that funny character, witty, silly, stupid sometimes. But then, like, it turned into him and the rest of the main characters just running and being scared. Yeah, I agree. That was a big problem for this one. They did not play up the humor. And if you have Chris Pratt, that's something you need to do. Not that you can't give him serious moments, and he does wonderful with them. But know your strengths. They did not tap into that. The relationship aspect, I also think, was scripted to be that way. Because they were on the outs, and we gather something has happened to their relationship in between the last movie and this, they were kind of bickering like a married couple that's now gotten divorced. Well, it's been three years. There's no romantic attraction, really, between them anymore. They still work together well. There was one part where they implied the chemistry was still kind of there and they were refusing to acknowledge it. I think that was a mistake because it didn't feel like they were playing it that way the rest of the time. I would have liked if they just kept it to, okay, we're coming back together to work and resolve this thing now. It's a little reminiscent, not as extreme, but it's a little reminiscent of Ryan Reynolds when he was the first Deadpool. 
not in these uh, Fox Deadpools, when he was in the X-Men Deadpool, and they actually sewed his mouth shut. It's like, you have Ryan Reynolds. You're going to sew his mouth shut? <laughs> yeah. I, I think just as big of an issue for me, they had Claire Deering, when they open up this movie, now working as a dinosaur rights activist who has founded the Dinosaur Protection Group in order to evacuate the survivors from Isla Nublar. Man, that felt really forced. We know her character much of the time in the first Jurassic World was buttoned up, very business-like about the dinosaurs. Didn't have a social life, all about work. Didn't care about the dinosaurs in that way. Of course, it makes sense after everything she went through in the first movie that she would have more empathy, but to the degree that she is now running this activist group and willing to risk the safety of everyone else, this is her life mission now, it didn't read the way our characters in the first Jurassic Park did, where they were so in love with the dinosaurs Mm. for the purest of reasons. They wanted to help them. I bought it for them. For her, uh, I don't know, a a little bit far. I do love the team she's working with this time. Two new additions. We have Franklin Webb, played by Justice Smith, who is a former IT technician for Jurassic World and now part of the protection group. He's the systems analyst and hacker, so to speak. And Dr. Zia Rodriguez, played by Daniela Pineda, a former Marine who is now the Dinosaur Protection Group's paleo-veterinarian. Their dynamic was awesome. They were funny, witty, strong. Yeah. Well, well Webb starts out being such a cowardy, so afraid yeah, of everything, but was, in the best way. Exactly. It bounced well off of Dr. Zia's strength, which was great. She was a badass. And he does step up in the end. For sure. It was such a short time for us to get to know them, but I felt they meshed well right off the bat into our group. I like the idea that they had a posse with them, the good guys, <laughs> had other people. It wasn't just Claire and Owen, and maybe that wouldn't have felt realistic. We talked about Sir Benjamin Lockwood, played by James Cromwell, who his acting was amazing. I do love him. I was a little disappointed we didn't get to see more of him. But they fill in the backstory that he was John Hammond's former partner in developing technology to clone dinosaurs. Hammond died in 1997, shortly after the events of The Lost World. This is when Simon Masrani, the CEO of the corporation and owner of Jurassic World, was entrusted by Hammond to direct the new park. So Engine was run as a subsidiary of Masrani Global. We learned that in the last movie. They purchased Engine in the years after The Lost World. And they helped to get the park up and running. It was going for 10 years before we had our last movie. This time around, Hammond was revealed to have been partners with Lockwood. And we learn about his plans to have a human cloned with the same experimental process. Yes, and that comes to a forefront in the end with his grandchild. Or not really, it's a clone of his grandchild. Which I think should have held more weight. I didn't really care at that point. It was such a quick revelation, and they did not bring it back into the story yet in any way. I think, again, movie three. And she she was there, this girl, (laughs) and did not kind of bring that, I'm a clone? Like, what? (laughs) Um, We're talking about Maisie Lockwood, played by Isabella Sermon. I have mixed feelings about her. I don't think it's that she's a bad actress, this girl. Again, I think it's the way 
she was written that most of the time she's just running and screaming. There was no room for her. She's made to look incredibly smart and crafty the way she keeps getting herself out of these situations. And yet we can't tell because there's no dialogue. Also a very small role that I felt could have been upped to great emotional effect, Iris, played by Geraldine Chaplin. She's the housekeeper of the Lockwood estate and Maisie's nanny. And she knows seemingly everything (laughs) about what's been going on in this movie, yet we see her on screen for just a couple of minutes. I wanted to say Sir Benjamin Lockwood, again played by James Cromwell, his character, oftentimes I find myself thinking of him as the character he played in iRobot. It was very similar. Yes. Which wasn't good or bad. It, it didn't matter. It was just something that my, my brain kept going back to. Because they were both endearing, and they were both smart and super rich. Yeah, sort of the founder, mentor type character. And they both created something that, at their time of their death, was exploited and changed. Certainly. Bringing it to the bad guys, we had Eli Mills played by Rafe Spall. We said he's the ambitious right-hand man. The actor says, for Eli, ambition is a powerful emotion. You can get wrapped up in it and end up doing things just to succeed. This character believes he's doing right. He's been entrusted with pushing Lockwood's fortune into the future and making it survive after he dies. Now, that's something I know he says in the movie, but I didn't get from his portrayal of things. I like the role that he's there to try to help Lockwood. Lockwood's outdated. He doesn't understand that it takes a lot of money to run things. And if somebody doesn't look at things practically, the resources are going to run out eventually. And then what happens to the dinosaurs? And so he's had to go out and do these things that are less than savory in order to upkeep that. But that's not how I took it. That's not how this character looked to me. He just looked downright evil. And very one-dimensional. The same could be said of Gunnar Eversall, played by Toby Jones. He's the auctioneer host who sells the Isla Nublar dinosaurs for profit. Jones says he's like a rogue arms dealer. He sees profit in selling the creatures as weapons. He's totally morally neutral, though, about what he's selling. Doesn't care one way or the other. Yeah, there wasn't enough time for Toby to really display this character's depth, where he comes from. But that's okay, because that type of character, that's fine if they don't have too much going on. But the fact that it was Toby Jones, you know, we did a podcast on Sherlock. We loved him in Sherlock. You don't bring him in Mm. just to give him this nothing as far as expanding it. I mean, sure, he sells it completely, even in a minimal amount of time. But we don't get a lot of backstory for him. We hardly get anything for Ken Wheatley, played by Ted Levine. And he's present throughout the entire movie. He's a seasoned mercenary who's in command of the rescue operations on the island and comes to the auction as well. He has this weird backstory of collecting teeth. He's kind of a Uh rough hunter style. And I like that. He does good with it. But why? Why is he doing any of this? We have no idea. It puts the lotion in the basket. He does say a couple of times... He's working for his bonus, right? That's why he Mm -hmm. goes so far to get Blue on board. He knows that's going to mean a lot of money for him. But kind of coming back around to what you said, it's all greed for all of them except perhaps Dr. Henry Wu. B.D. Wong says this character is motivated by his love for science and his own ego, which is well supported by his massive achievements. He's really kind of a genius and responsible for the technology behind creating these creatures. I think he turns a blind eye to the human suffering. 
because he thinks he's looking at some bigger picture. Which most bad guys use that concept. Doesn't matter who dies, the bigger picture is more important. And I like that. In this movie, I don't know what he thinks the bigger picture is for genetically engineering these dinosaurs that are going to be used as weapons. At some point, he comes to the other characters. He comes to Eli and says, we can't do this. You know, when the Indoraptor starts going up for sale, we can't sell that. It's a prototype. There is this sense of when it's going to go too far. I didn't get that. I got it as we can't sell it. It's a prototype as in the artist is saying, I'm not done painting that painting. You can't sell it yet. It's not perfect yet. I would get that totally if that was the only line. But earlier when Maisie is spying on them in the lab room, you hear Wu arguing with Eli, telling him this is not how it's meant to be. We had this idea that we were going to incorporate blue because that would make the animals more able to be trained and subservient, the way you're doing it, it's not going to work like that. It, it felt like he had a fear, but we don't really get any more than that for now. Okay, that's going to wrap up our humans for the most part. Let's go to the fun section and talk about the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs! This is my favorite. I could go on all day. We do have quite a few, but we tried to pick out just the ones that were really relevant, and I'm going to kind of breeze through it. Here's a disclaimer up front. I am going to mispronounce every single I was just going to say that. These. I can't wait to hear you say their names. Yeah. Don't know how to say most of them. I'm truly sorry about that. We'll go in alphabetical order, starting with the Ankylosaurus, whose name means fused lizard. He's an herbivore, and he's the one we learn later at the auction is essentially a living tank. He's got bony plates of armor all over the body and a strong, deadly club-like tail. We've seen him featured more in previous movies. Correct. Pretty badass. He, he kind of has a cute looking face. Yeah, though. he does though. You can always tell the herbivores, they give this depiction to them where they're a little bit cute. Their actions <laughs> are a little dog-like. We're endeared to them. They did that with Blue this time around as well, which is a smart move. They specifically said they mimicked some of dog movements mm. to make him more endearing. And birds, but we'll get to oh, that. Oh, he's got a lot of bird, Yeah. Next, we had the Baryonyx, or Heavy Claw. This is the carnivore we saw in the tunnel when Clara and Franklin are stuck down in that communication center and the dino comes in through the tunnel at them. Really scary looking, a spinosaur with a long, narrow snout and cone-shaped teeth. Of course, we talked about the Brachiosaurus. Then we have the Carnotaurus, or meat-eating bull. He's got a short skull with spiked armor and a pair of knobby horns over very small eyes. Incredibly short arms, even shorter than those of the T-Rex. Now, why is he important? He was used in the creation of Indominus Rex, the hybrid from last movie. This is interesting when they go to make the Indoraptor this time around. We know they're using raptor DNA, but there were so many other things already in the Indominus that they're pulling from. After that, we have the Indoraptor himself, or the Indomitable Thief. What did you think about him? He was terrifying looking. Yeah, I loved his colors. It was a dark purple with that bright yellow, scarish looking highlight. And he kind of had some feathers. They gave him a lot of personality, and they gave him bigger toes, more humanistic as far as length is concerned. Yeah, they almost look like human arms. He's kind of walking on all fours. His toenails are similar to a velociraptor. He uses that same echolocation where he's 
tapping. Tapping on the ground. So frightening. Yeah, that w- they definitely used that as a scary movie type trope, which I didn't mind. I didn't I mind love that. It. It was pretty cool. You know, in reading about him, a couple of the behind the scenes things mentioned they were doing things to make him look either sick or as though something was wrong with him. They said there's shots where some of the skin is peeling. You wonder or you're made to wonder if through this genetic modification, something is wrong with him. I didn't quite pick up on that. No, I didn't pick up on that too. And I think that would have been a great thing to have because he's portrayed as almost this impossible villain, right? He's so smart, so fast, has a sense of smell unlike any of the other dinosaurs, is incredibly intelligent the way he gets over on Wheatley by laying that trap for him when he comes in and tries to take his tooth. You almost feel as though there's no way realistically <laughs> our heroes could beat him, even with Blue coming in to help them. Yeah, I felt bad for Blue when he had to face him. I was like, no, Blue, don't do it. It's kind of ridiculous. And now on top of that, the way they've trained him to go and get his targets using the laser, we really could have used some weaknesses like that. Yeah. Again, they didn't have time to flesh that out. We were introduced to him real quick, and then all of a sudden, oh, that's the main bad guy. Okay. Uh, I have to tell you, I liked in movie one, them having a new dinosaur. If they lean on that every movie, it's going to get old real quick. Well, and this is something that could have had a good twist on that. How difficult, we're mostly talking about physicality of how you make the dinosaur look. Instead of perfect and incredibly intimidating, he's got some of these things that indicate something's going on there. Hmm. And they said they had his whole body shake at certain points. And that was almost... I saw that. That was kind of cool. Meant to mimic mental illness. Oh, all right. I was wondering what it meant. I thought meant it meant just like overly excited. Right. Achilles, when he gets overly excited, he, he like... None of that was reading maybe the way they intended it to. And I think they're really great concepts that could have added to it. Anyhow, moving on, we have the Mosasaurus, who was really more prominent in the last one. But we do see him at the beginning and end of this movie, the Muse Lizard. Huge. A, <laughs> huge aquatic carnivorous lizard. He's basically the one that inevitably took down Indominus Rex. Mm-hmm. Scariest one of them all. I think, again, movie three is going to be more of a big deal because we saw that surfing scene with him coming up and he's going to eat all those humans. Yeah, we're going to go Jaws now, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, after that, we have the Cynoceratop or Chinese horned face. He's an herbivore, similar to real-life counterparts. He's got parts of the Triceratops in him, of course. Uh, but he has these holes in that top frill on his head and two spikes in the center. His body is bright forest green. Again, he's an herbivore, so there's something kind of cute about his face. But <laughs> maybe one of my favorites. Me too. And I'm going to just butcher this. Stiggy Moloch. They nicknamed him Stiggy, so let's just call him that. It <laughs> stands for Sticks Devil. Now, surprisingly enough, he's an herbivore. And we don't quite get that because he's so aggressive. He's got a row of spikes on the back of this big domed head and a reddish kind of hue with a white dome. Like some of our other dinosaurs, he comes to assist our heroes in yeah. this movie. Unwittingly, of he course. He likes to bash. Yeah, I call him the headbutter. Yeah. 
He was hilarious. His scenes were a mixture of power and... Dopiness. Dopey comic. <laughs> you know, when you see a, a dog run across a newly waxed floor and it's just sliding and it's like, oh no. You know what I thought of throughout this whole thing? Do you remember Hey Hey from Moana? Yes, the of course. The chicken who kept oh, bumping yes. into things. <laughs> Except when this guy does it, he's launching people up into the air. He can break through a cement wall. I mean, he's pretty awesome. He was some comic relief that we really desperately needed at that point in the movie. And finally, we said we have the T-Rex, the Tyrant Lizard King, and the Velociraptor, the Plunderer. So with Velociraptors, every movie we say this, it reminds us so much of Achilles. The way he moves, the way he acts, the way he looks at uh, other beings. And the way he was hugging Owen. And snuggling him. Yeah. Very bird-like. And science has said now, they've kind of changed their angle with dinosaurs. And they're saying they are more bird-like. Actually, most of them probably had feathers. Mm. So it makes sense. Yeah. Some of them feel very reptilian. The ones they have nicknamed lizard this and lizard that feel more like reptiles. But others very much bird-like. And what's funny is not the actual birds. So the ones like the pteranodon that we see flying at the end of the movie, that feels like predator birds, larger, bigger birds combined with something else. But these dinos here feel like the intelligent, maybe smaller bird species. There's something about that in them. They can bond to humans, as we see Blue doing here, but they're also going to kind of do their own thing. <laughs> and of course, we got glimpses at a bunch of others. By name, we had the Compsognathus, or the really tiny dinosaurs that Those run in packs. Those are always cute. Those are great. Uh, and a bunch more that we won't get into now because they're not really critical to our storyline. Thank you to our friends at Mack Weldon for making this podcast possible. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. In high school, I got best dressed. I really valued the way I looked. I wanted to feel good in my clothes. Recently, I acquiesced to the fact that Christina is way more beautiful than I am. <laughs> and whenever we go out, I know that whatever I'm wearing, she's going to look better. And that was fine. But for the first time this weekend, I was able to go out with Christina and know that I was rocking some killer gear. And I think I may have outshined her a little bit. With Mack Weldon, I got the most comfortable underwear ever and a polo shirt that as soon as you take it out of the box, you realize this fabric, this is what Conor McGregor must feel like when he's wearing his $10,000 suits. I looked at what it was made of and it said Modal. I don't know what that is, but it's amazing. <laughs> That's because they started from scratch and engineered their own fabrics. They make sure the design process is meticulous. So not only do you have a great product, but you can count on the fit being the same each time. For those of you who order a lot of your clothes online, this is a major plus. And it's not just underwear and shirts. It's socks, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants. They even have bags. Which we did receive as well. I got this Eon Weekender, which is like a duffel bag on steroids. The fabric is super tough. Inside is a battery pack that will charge your phone, no matter if it's an iPhone or an Android, inside the bag. Multiple devices. At the same time, in fact, I'm really jealous. The designs and special pockets on yours are amazing. I think I want one of those too. 
But for whatever reason, if you're not 100% satisfied, they have a try-on guarantee. So if you don't like your first item you've ordered, you can keep it. They will still refund you. No questions asked. Talk about having confidence in your own product. There's no risk there. Why not try it out? And for our Clatchers, you can get 20% off your first order by visiting MacWeldon.com and entering promo code CKC at checkout. If you go to the website and take a look, you will see it's very clean and easy to navigate. Jason, being a web designer, I know you said your first thought was that the website is both beautiful and easy to use. Absolutely. The clothes are very classy and the website's very classy. And then the checkout process is so visually pleasing, I might have to copy it from my website. (laughs) Don't tell them that. So for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code CKC at checkout. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code CKC. All right, Jason, we've talked about a lot, but let's get into our actual plot. We open up three years after the incident at the first Jurassic World theme park, where a small team of mercenaries arrives on the abandoned island, Isla Nublar, to collect a bone sample from the remains of the Indominus Rex that lies at the bottom of the park's lagoon. They plan to use the DNA for the creation of a new genetically modified hybrid, the Indoraptor. After sending a piece of bone to the surface, the team is attacked by the park's Mosasaurus. The land crew starts to flee when the veteran T-Rex attacks the group. The man left on the ground runs as the helicopter lets down a rope ladder. He manages to escape, but then man and ladder are also swallowed by the Mosasaurus. As the rest of the team barely escapes, the lagoon gate is left open, allowing the water dinosaur to escape out into the ocean. So, visually, I enjoyed them opening the movie like this. So much chaos, the dinosaurs in all their glory, reminding us of the Mosasaurus. That's what we wanted, right? We're back to Jurassic World. Welcome back. Enjoy your movie. But right away, they started with this kind of scary movie trope where... The humans just do something so asinine, so stupid. Well, I'm going to stop you there, though, because not scary movie trope. Typical Jurassic Park, the early movies. And they aren't going to go back to that for the remainder of the movie. Us just running and being scared of the dinosaurs for what they are. There's so much else happening. But here, for instance, when the guy is trying to work with that computer panel, I don't really know what he's doing out there and the T-Rex is sneaking up, hidden behind the bushes on him. That was cool. And it's raining, and he's calling, and he can't hear anything. Harkening back to so many of the early ones, when the guy runs out into the rain to the toilets. Yes, I remember that. And he's being chased by the dinosaur. When Nedry himself is running through the rain and can't see anything until the dinosaur is right on top of him. This was just so much of original Jurassic Park nostalgia. Well, yeah, the toilet scene was great because he wasn't even running. He was just, he was actually in the toilet. He didn't know what was going on. Well, he ran to the toilet. And then he got the whole building taken off and he's sitting there on the bowl. (laughs) So I liked it for that. Actually, yeah, I'm not complaining at this point. It was Jurassic Park. I loved it. Scary dinosaurs, rain, helicopters, the Mosasaurus, Badass. The underwater subtech was really cool. That was fun. Picking up the arms, sending up the bone to the surface. Again, there's so much we didn't get to see about the park itself. Even with it not functioning, we could have gone back and spent some time there. And I think there's more that could have been explored like this that would have been interesting. 
But what this does establish is that this crew has been there for a while before our heroes come. So if you didn't pick up on that, you might have thought, wow, they really just got all those dinosaurs really fast into Mm. that ship and now they're leaving already. They've been there for a while getting all those animals. Yeah, they briefly brushed over the fact that there's a couple that are evading capture, primarily blue. And that's essentially why they need our team. They can't get the dinosaur tracking mechanisms back on. And Blue, if he senses you from miles away, Mm -hmm. will just run. And the only way they're going to be able to get him is with the tracking turned on and somebody like Owen to assist. Over on the U.S. mainland, a Senate hearing debates whether Isla Nublar's dinosaurs should be saved from an impending volcanic eruption. Dr. Ian Malcolm says the dinosaurs should be left to die, as he believes nature is correcting the mistake Hammond made by cloning the dinos long ago. I'm so sexy. You have to listen to what I'm saying, because the way I'm saying it is so sexy. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jurassic World's former operation manager, Claire, has created the Protection Group, the organization to save the dinosaurs. And after the Senate rejects the rescue, she's contacted by Lockwood, Hammond's former partner, to come to his estate. You know their slogan? They have t-shirts. Save the D. But some people thought it meant something different. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) But Claire goes to meet Lockwood, where she's met by his assistant, Eli Mills. He plans to move the dinosaurs to a new island sanctuary where they can live without human interference. Or at least, that's what he tells her. He's concerned that locating Blue, the last living velociraptor, will be difficult. So she goes to recruit Owen Grady, the former velociraptor trainer, to join the mission. This is where we get their brief interaction. He's apparently been off building his house on the lake. Hey, it's manly, and that's what Chris Pratt would be doing. That's what he always wanted in the passengers. I'm going to build my own house by myself, apparently. Well... Claire and Owen set off on a charter plane with Zia, the veterinarian, and Franklin, the IT expert. And the group arrives on the island where they meet mercenary Ken Wheatley. They all set off to reactivate an abandoned radio communications tower that they will use to find the dinosaurs via their RFID chip implants. Owen, Zia, Wheatley, and the mercenaries go off to search for Blue. Throughout this, we get that scene with the O4 explorer from the first Jurassic Park. Owen finds Blue and is in the process of rebonding with her when Wheatley and his team appear. Ugh. They shoot Blue and tranquilize Owen. They leave him there but take Zia as she's the only one who can save Blue. I was worried about this because we have learned with birds, we did a lot of research before we got Achilles. It takes a long time to establish a bond with a bird. If you mess up once, you have the chance of losing that bond right there and never be able to bond with them again. It's not like a dog where you yell at them and they learn why you're yelling at them and they, they still want your love. Or they don't care and they come back five seconds later. Yeah. Birds, you mess up once, you get mad, they bite you and you smack them, which we've never done, thank God. Uh, he's bitten the shit out of us, but <laughs> he's bitten your eyeball. Yeah. Out of nowhere, because you laughed at a movie and he was snuggling. Scared. Mostly it's because he gets scared. Yeah. And you see that with Blue too. He's very skittish. So if... We did that to Achilles, and then he got shot. I mean, if he was bigger, obviously. (laughs) Uh, He would never, ever listen to us or bond with us or be 
cool with us again. Well, there's a couple things in there too. A, if you're gone for a period of time, it takes a couple minutes for that bond to kind of reform. They're going to they be anxious. They did show that a little bit. Correct. And in addition to having this calming presence, approaching them very gently, portraying that inner calm, and that translates to them, you simultaneously have to show that you are the alpha. You're approaching gently, but you're also saying, I am in control. And you see Pratt doing that, where he's like, hey, hey, come on now, you know, knock it off. You know me. They feel more comfortable if you're establishing, I am the leader. Yeah, and this is what we really loved about movie one. And I'm glad that they reintroduced it. The fact that Chris Pratt has this bond with Blue, that was such an integral part of movie one with him training Blue and being in control and the love that they have there, the respect. And then with the video flashbacks that we get later on, again, reestablishes that. And I really enjoyed those scenes. They made it so true to life. There's this complex relationship, but it makes sense on many levels. I also love that they brought in, while they're all velociraptors, there is something different about Blue that makes him more intelligent, and more likely to follow along with what Owen says. Going back to the bird example, if you look at green cheek conyers, which is what Achilles is, they're all green cheek conyers. They all essentially look very much the Hmm. same, act very much the same, and yet they will tell you when you go to buy one. Some will be a little more interactive than others, more social. Some may learn more words than others. Don't be surprised if they never pick up more than a few. Over time, our bird says about 15 different words in yeah, context. Yeah, 15 to 20. It's pretty amazing. He can learn tricks. So you do occasionally get some of these specimens that are a little bit smarter, yeah. more able to train. Yeah, and I think Achilles messes with us because he'll say things like, want to take a bath? We know he wants to take a bath. He'll say, I love you. What are you doing when we're ignoring him? Not ignoring him. When we're living life mm-hmm. and we're not in the room with him, he'll go like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> but sometimes... When he's being a bitch and then we feed him, like we're trying to eat and he knows that we have french fries and he loves french fries. He'll be such a bitch until we give him a fry. And you know what he says? Good boy. Yeah. And it makes me feel like he's saying like, good boy, asshole. You finally gave me the food. You know, like he's training us. Exactly. Good job. (laughs) Good boy. Well, so (laughs) so many of these things is why blue comes across so realistic to us and i like that a lot you're my boy blue back at the park meanwhile claire and franklin reactivate the park's dinosaur trackers in the command bunker while this is going on mount sebo erupts causing the mercenaries to drive off locking the two of them inside the old communication center unfortunately a baryonyx makes it through the old tunnel and the two narrowly escape using an emergency ladder those were funny that was a mixture of fun you know (laughs) Franklin seeing his fears coming to him and having mishaps and almost moments. I love that. Tell me it's not the (laughs) T-Rex. Now, we chose not to do 3D. We had a dilemma because we knew there would probably be really awesome 3D scenes. But when you go 3D, you're going to lack those landscape features. The big, vast images in 3D tend to lose its beauty, its detail. And we thought, Jurassic World, come on, we got to get those, right? But this was one of the scenes, and there was a few others, where, yeah, 3D probably would have been really cool. Yeah, I'm going to go against you here. Judging off the first one, 3D but 3D would have been a mistake. But actually, with this movie, the majority of it was running, escaping, action, 
True. scenes where things are yeah, coming at you. You're right. This might have been ideal for 3D. Yeah, we didn't know that. The lava moment, which we haven't gotten to yet, 3D moment for sure. Yeah, there was plenty of 3D moments. All the running around at the Lockwood Estate, I guarantee you a lot of those, the climbing on the edge of the building. If anybody saw it in 3D, please write in and let us know what was the experience like and what were some of the best 3D moments. Actually, I think Melly was telling us last night we were going to see Jurassic World. Kirk was going to see Jurassic World and Melly was going to the movies. She wanted to see Jurassic World with her husband, but they only had 3D available. So they went and saw Deadpool 2 instead. Oh, no. Which I I really want to see as well. What I can't get past is them charging more for 3D. It's like four or $5 more. Jason, it's these incredibly high-tech glasses you're getting. (laughs) I mean, come on. (laughs) Well, after they flee the communication center, Claire and Franklin reunite with Owen as they all run to get away from the erupting volcano as well as the stampede of dinosaurs that's running. And this part was really cool as they're running with them. Mm. They are united against this bigger threat, which is a natural disaster. And this was the last scene where they where they really let Chris Pratt be funny. When he was running, he was the, just the way he was running and yelling to them was hilarious. Well, escaping the lava, we didn't talk about when he's coming to from being paralyzed yeah. and trying to drag his Oh my his God, that was hilarious. I forgot about over that. The log. <laughs> oh, that was hilarious. That was good. And then, yes, this scene running, they managed to get into this abandoned gyrosphere all but Owen. To flee from the lava, but it plummets off a cliff into the ocean. And Owen has to rescue them from the sinking apparatus, and the group races to sneak aboard the mercenary ship to reunite with Zia. Very cool scenes. That car scene was probably great in 3D. Right away, we've gotten pounded with awesome action. Spectacular thrills. I'm on board. Well, I was actually thinking to myself at this point, though, Wow, this is too much too quick. We get the shot of the Senate hearing, the quick shot of Claire at her old work. Then she's already going to find Owen in about 0.2 seconds. We spend a couple of minutes at the Lockwood Estate. Now we're already off on a helicopter to Isla Nublar. And the island itself, we're barely there for any period of time. It felt a little rushed and fragmented, and I wonder why are they hurrying along so quickly just to get to the Lockwood Estate where it then kind of dragged it was a lot of just running from one room to the next away from one dinosaur to the next well you know as we're going through the plot i'm starting to remember a lot of things i gotta be honest i'm feeling very self-conscious with the way we opened up this podcast (laughs) because i felt like i was very down on this movie and i think that's a mistake we might get some emails saying we've seen podcasts where people are getting berated for just being down on a movie so much. I hope that we're pulling across that we really did enjoy watching this movie, but as an art piece, as a Jurassic World narrative, it was lacking. It was a thrill ride. It was visually stunning. There were surprising, even scary moments. I I don't think it's any different than the historical problems Jurassic Park has always had. The first one had an excellent, fully formed narrative. And with two and three, they struggled to find a story, even though the rest of that stuff, the visuals, were amazing. Same thing here. Jurassic World 1 opens up with this incredibly self-contained, beautiful narrative that makes a lot of sense. And now you feel like we're struggling to transition from this one to three in a storytelling sense. But 
it doesn't make it not enjoyable. That's the kind of thing that might kill it for some people, the critics or other podcasters that are saying it just doesn't meet the bar. I think summer blockbuster entertainment-wise, it's amazing. Yeah, and for sure, I'm so glad we're still podcasting about it. If I could turn back time, I'd still be like, Clatchers, please vote for this. Mm. Let me give you a horrible analogy because I'm really good at this. With Jurassic Park and Jurassic World and some other movies who do something so right. And let's hearken back to A Quiet Place where we said it was brilliant. It was so different. If they start making two, three, four, five, it might fall. Probably will. I always visualize something like toast. And you're buttering toast, okay? And you take the first knife of butter and you start buttering it and it's looking good. God, I can't wait. It's melting. This is going to be great. But as you're going, you're running out of butter and you're trying to get that butter through the entire toast. There's not enough butter and you're just scraping. Until you're you lo- pull you're holes a, through the bread? Is that where we're going with look. this? You give, she's giving me <laughs> such a bad look. Basically, they have that one stick of butter that was so good and they're trying to spread that butter out as long as possible and they're running out of butter. I'm going to disagree with you again. I think there are definitely movies like this and you cringe when you start to hear they're doing a three or even a four. You just know it's going to end bad. Saw. Saw one was amazing. I think this is more along the lines of a Mr. Robot, please don't yell at me, sometimes a Westworld, where they open up with a bang with the one and they know they have a vision for where three is going. Yes. And two is just getting you there. Sophomore slump. So I really think this is that because I don't see Jurassic World and Jurassic Park as being one long continuation. They did a reboot. Yes. It's the same universe, but two separate entities narratively. Absolutely. So Jurassic World 1 felt like the same kind of enthusiasm and spectacle to me as Jurassic Park 1. No, I I agree with you. I wasn't trying to, I wasn't putting those both in the same toast. Oh, I thought you meant the butter from the whole thing. No, Jurassic Park 1 and then 2 and 3, they were still trying to use the same butter. It's a horrible analogy. (laughs) Well, that's why I was looking at you like you're crazy. Fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. I do. And here's the problem I have with that. I can stick with them through a two. I'm going to stick with them and through this, a three. And this was a great, actually, filler number two. There are so many things number twos do worse that they didn't do. If we're just trying to get to the point of where number three is going. I'm worried, and mm. I'll save this for the end, at the direction where I think they're going with number three. I'm worried it could either go good or bad, but we'll we'll stop at that mm-hmm. until later. They're going to continue to make it. Movie 1 made 1.65 billion dollars. Yeah, uh, number 2 and 3, 618, 368 million. No, I meant number 1 as in Jurassic World 1. Oh, well, Jurassic Park 1 though also made a little over a billion dollars. Wow. And but then had that downtrend. Now, yes, Jurassic World won 1.6. For two, we're at 524 million, and it just recently came out. So I think they're going to get close to that billion. That shows a vast improvement on retention, one to two, than the Jurassic Park series. And we do have some word on the number three, which we'll get to in a little bit. Christina. Yeah? Football season's starting. 
Don't I know it. That means fantasy time. We're going to have our fantasy teams. But we have one problem. The last couple of years, our favorite team, the Jets, they're not that good. Okay, pause so that the audience out there can groan. Yes, we are Jets fans. We're New York and New Jersey, born and raised. We just can't help it. It's in our blood. So that means watching the games aren't as fun as they used to be. And we don't want to watch other teams because they just destroyed the Jets. But I have an idea. Let's have some fun with this season. Let's put a little bit of money in to some of the games every week. This way, every game will be more fun. We know from playing fantasy football, the competition factor kind of ups it. It makes it more exciting. Well, through my bookie, you can get in-game live betting and the most rewarding player perks in the business. After all, who you're betting on is just as important as who you're betting with. That's why you should bet with my bookie. They've been in business for years, have great reviews, and a mobile site that's easy to use. And for you fantasy people out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many points a fantasy player will score each game. Now, they have all sports. Football, basketball, baseball, UFC, Jason. They even have horse racing. They got everything there. So if football's not your bag, you can do any of those. There's so many options. Just speaking of football, you can bet on anything from NFL preseason to the Super Bowl. Possible matchups by division. Games in regular season. We'll ask my bookie. Maybe they'll put up a bet. Will Jason and Christina be disappointed this week? (laughs) Well, yes. I'm glad you bring that up. There's other things besides football and sports. They have an entertainment category where you can vote on the Emmy Awards, different popular movies, and for our listeners, Game of Thrones. That's right. They have a category for season eight, first to perish, and ruler of Westeros. Come on, how awesome is that? They have payout requests in just 48 hours, 24-7 customer service, a loyalty program, and great bonuses on every deposit. Listen to this. If you join now, MyBookie will match your first deposit 100% up to $1,000. That is insane. That's free money. So I put $100 in. They give me $100. I got $200 to play with. You play, you win, you get paid. It's your best bet this season. Visit mybookie.ag online today. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E dot A-G. And use the promo code CLATCH. That's K-L-A-T-C-H. That's mybookie.ag, promo code CLATCH. Well, back to Lockwood's estate. Maisie, the granddaughter, learns that Mills is secretly working with auctioneer Gunnar Eversall to sell the captured dinosaurs which includes the Indoraptor, the new genetically engineered dinosaur created by Dr. Henry Wu, using the DNA of the Indominus Rex and the Velociraptor. Wu plans to use Blue's DNA to create improved versions of the Indoraptor. They need Blue's clues in order to complete the Indoraptor. Yes, they've made it, but in order to weaponize it, to make it follow along with your plans, they need Blue. And that's why this version, the prototype... Yeah. Is not It's not done. that. It's not a weapon that can be wielded. And they did show the dichotomy of that with the clips of Chris Pratt, I keep saying that, with Owen and their first raptor. And he was saying, watch when I show weakness. And it attacked him. And then with Blue, and I don't know the time, some months later with this next version, watch when I show weakness and he hugs him or he cuddles with him. That's what they're trying to get from Blue. Mm -hmm. That's the value in it. He didn't just have sheer natural abilities. He had a heightened heightened intelligence and heightened social skills. Mm. So 
it's not just the raptors. There's something special about Blue that they need, and that's why they were so eager to get him off the island. When Maisie tries to warn her grandfather, Lockwood privately confronts Mill about the auction, but is then murdered by him. So these were good things. They showed that Lockwood shut her down, and we're like, oh, he's not listening. No, he was listening, but he didn't want to get her involved. He was protecting her by playing like, no, we'll talk about it in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know. But I knew that once he's aware of it, he becomes a risk, a threat, and inevitably he's going to get ridden of. Well, this is foolish, though. Why did Lockwood tell Mills? Why did he confront him? Well, this always happens in movies. You know that this is a villain who's out to get you. Combined with the fact that Lockwood is in this very fragile physical state, if his plan was to call the cops or do whatever, why didn't he just do that? Oh, here, let me tell you, really bad guy, about how I intend to take you down. Oh, yeah. You know, I hate that. Yeah, you're right. So thus, we don't get to see any more about Lockwood, his relationship with the granddaughter. I think narratively, we had to just get him out of the picture. It's a little unfortunate. But now we move back over to Owen and Claire, who are discovered on the way into the mansion and locked in a cell at the estate while Zia and Franklin manage to evade capture. As the auction begins, Owen and Claire escape with the help of Stiggy. And we uh, talked about how this was just a just really comical. great scene. Loved I love it. it. They find Macy, who leads them to where the auction is taking place, and they see the Indoraptor is being sold, despite Wu's warnings that it's just a prototype. So this brings me to a few things. One, it reminds me of the fact that Claire really had no character depth after the first act where they were saying like she's good now save the d (laughs) what was her point yeah it's interesting i mean we did have glimmers of the character things going on in jurassic world one claire always thinks she knows right here she is the one so eager so naive wanting to save the dinosaurs owen comes in he really has a much more intimate understanding of the way these dinosaurs are, he worked with them at the park. So he's telling her from the plane ride over there, this is going to be problems, it's not going to be easy. When they're on the boat and they have to do the blood transfusions, Mm -hmm. she is terrified to go in there and do this. I'd be too. Understandably so. But then it's Pratt who frees Stiggy to get out of their cell. And Claire is looking at him like, do you really know what you're doing here? Because, yeah, he can help us get out of here, but that's going to cause mayhem. And from the first dino released, which is him, it's chaos. Once you open those doors, this is not under your control anymore. And every dino that gets out after that is subsequent destruction, terror. Well, only one dino got out because of that. And that's our main villain. Because the other ones, they release on the gates. Well, I'm saying we see the interactions. Like, first, it's just Stiggy. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then the Indoraptor gets out, and he, of course, starts. But they would have been killed. But then Blue gets out, and just as much as some of them are helping them, it's like opening the floodgates. You can't yeah. pull that back, even if you have this connection like you do with Blue. Now that he's out there, he's going to say... Uh, come back with you to a safe place? No, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'm going to just go out in the woods and be on my own. There's no turning back. So back to the auction. First of all, I'd love to be able to say 10 million and it'd be nothing. This was insane, <laughs> but I was thinking about it. For what they're buying, 10 million for one of these dinosaurs to these people is nothing. Is probably nothing. The, the fact that they can take the DNA now, that they could create. As many dinos as they want. They could have a dino army. 
and then they see a prize piece, or so they view it, like the Indoraptor, there's no amount they're not willing to go. Well, yeah, one they can control. Of course that's going to entice them. But why do they want the prototype? They see. Because to them, it's already working. They showed the laser pointer, and that's all that matters. So dumb. But again, there's the shallow bad guy, Mills, who's like, that's a lot of money. All right, yeah, auction them off. Yeah, and Wu saying, this is a problem. And then the ultimate stupidity, just no excusing it, that Ken Wheatley goes in there, opens the damn Uh, cage to get the tooth. All about the teeth. This thing is so smart, he knows exactly what he's doing. Now the Indoraptor is loose. But it was a cool scene when his eyes were opening, and that showed a lot of personality there. Yes. He was almost winking at us, like, watch this. Tail moving, <laughs> you know, I got this. And we spend a lot of time after this just trying to get away from the Indoraptor. There's the scene in between where Mills tells Owen and Claire that Macy's actually a clone. She's the reason John Hammond, who was against cloning, ended his partnership with Lockwood in the first place. And the Indoraptor continues to hunt the group throughout the mansion. You have the scenes upstairs where they're running through those diorama-like mm. examples of the dinosaurs. Which is pretty cool. And I did like the fact that Macy is this girl who knows the house inside and out. She knows how to get around secretly. She's been outside. She's traversed the walls before. Those tie-ins were great. Except for the part where she runs up, does all of these amazing feats to get away from the Indoraptor and then runs to her room under the covers? Well, she's scared. But that's what I mean. They made her out to be highly intelligent, precocious, strong and able to get away. And then occasionally she just stands there and screams or runs to her room. And you're like, that's not the character we've been building. Yeah, I would have stayed in the laundry dump for sure. Just until everything was done. Now I know she's a kid, right? And kids, no matter how tough they are, this freaking crazy creatures coming at you and you're gonna panic. They did manage to save it because Owen comes up and then Blue comes to the rescue Mm. and this is just amazing. Him attacking the Indoraptor gives them a chance to get outside and now they have this highly climactic scene where they're up on the roof and they're going over this glass ceiling. Between them tricking the Indoraptor out there and then Blue coming to the rescue... They manage to cause it to fall through the ceiling where it becomes impaled to death on a triceratops skull on display. Which is very cool because that was the skull that he was climbing on before. I love when they do callbacks like that. Well, and we learn they've manufactured him so thoroughly, the bullets don't pierce his hide. So that was one of the only ways they were going to be able to kill him. Yeah. I want to take a moment and stop and, and think about the fact that Macy is a clone this has to be something that's going to be very important in movie three, right? Because Dr. Ian Malcolm ends the movie with this saying, this possibly could change into a completely different movie. They won't let it change, but it could turn into more of a, dare I say, Westworld type movie, right? It's pretty extraordinary, to say the least, that we have a functioning clone person. Yeah, you would think this would be the thing the rich investors would want to pay for. Yeah, I can see wanting a weapon, but like we said, there's so many other issues with that. I'm assuming they don't know. I'm assuming nobody really knows. The secret was so well protected. It felt like only Lockwood, Iris, and Mills, potentially, well, and we know Hammond, knew about the granddaughter. 
there are definitely three distinct ways that they could go in the future of the movies. I don't think they're ever going to lose that hallmark of what makes Jurassic Park so Mm. iconic, but the backdrop of the secondary narrative is definitely going to be different for Jurassic Park 3 and on. There's no way to avoid that now. They fiddled with that a little bit in one of the previous Jurassic Parks where a dino got to the mainland, but it very quickly was kind of reneged because, yeah, that changes the whole landscape. Well, let's come back to these ending scenes. In the chaos, tanks were punctured, causing a hydrogen cyanide leak that the group cannot stop. And the ventilation system is also broken, so they can't fix this. This I did not like. It felt so contrived. You have this back and forth. Do we let them go? Do we not? Another heart-wrenching moment that these creatures are dying right in front of you. We kind of already got that with the Brachiosaurus. I don't think I needed more. You do feel why it's a struggle. And I like that ultimately Claire is able to say, this is a mistake. We're not going to be able to control it. And she's not going to press the button. It's when her back is turned that Macy does it. Well, let me ask you, would you have pressed the button? No. No? You would have watched them die? Mm Mm-hmm. It would have been incredibly difficult the way it was. I feel like I would have been a Claire. I almost cried when our vet was cutting Achilles' nails. Yeah, but I here's what I think. I, I would have been a Claire the entire time wanting to look at this optimistically if we could just transport them to this island where they can be safe from human interaction, maybe we can live separately but allow them the chance to thrive. Here now in this moment that I'm going to set them loose in the U.S. where they're going to go rampage and kill other people and we're not going to be able to catch them, that's insanity, right? You just don't do that. And they both look at each other. They know they can't do that. But of course, through the eyes of a child, she has to do it. That's what she says, I had to do it. So she opens the doors. They escape their cages and the mansion. Mills attempts to escape with the Indominus Rex bone, but is killed by the T-Rex, who also tramples the bone. That was a great scene. That's right, T-Rex to the rescue. Reminding us, though, that we lose a lot of characters right here in this movie, introduced and then taken from us. Benjamin Lockwood was murdered. Eli Mills, the main antagonist, is killed by the end. Gunnar Eversall, played by Toby Jones, I think he died, Mm. right, during that auction? Of course, the elevator scene. The elevator scene, (laughs) that's right. And Ken Wheatley, the mercenary, are really the only one to escape that mansion other than our characters, we believe, was Dr. Henry Wu. Always. Because he's always going to make it. But if you look at the ongoing forces to push this narrative in the future, there's not many other than our heroes. Don't worry, they had more partners. (laughs) They'll introduce it. No, I don't think they have to at this point because they're going to be out there in Vegas. With different problems. Well, not just Vegas. They're going to be spreading. Owen and Claire leave with Macy. They aren't able to get Blue back. He escapes with the rest of the dinos to the mainland. And in a new U.S. Senate hearing, Dr. Ian Malcolm says humans must now learn to coexist with dinosaurs. So now we've got genetic power. So how long is it going to take for that to spread around the globe? And what's going to be done with it? It ain't going to stop with the de-extinction of the dinosaurs. I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. I'm talking about man-made cataclysmic change. What kind of change? Change is like death. 
You don't know what it looks like until you're standing at the gates. Also, if you stayed for it, there is a post-credit scene. Everyone left the theater. Christina and myself were sitting there. I had my huge tub of popcorn, which, by the way, Clatchers uh, were quick to say, is that all for you? Yes. Yeah, and it made you sick. It made me sick. Let's be truthful. <laughs> it made me sick that night. <laughs> I tend to... I, we work so hard during the week with our regular jobs that when it's time to let loose, I tend to go overboard. Yeah. There's a, there's a problem that I have to deal with. <laughs> but we're leaving. There's a guy there cleaning up, and the music is almost gone. We've been in credits for five minutes. Forever. And I just lean over and I go, hey, there's an ending scene, isn't there? And he's like, yeah, but it's not worth it. It's like three seconds. And we're like, okay. So we stood up, we started walking, and we could not leave. Well, at this point, you see the final one scrolling up, and you're thinking, you start seeing I've logos. waited yeah. for five minutes. Now I just have to stay, right? There's about 10 seconds left. And in fact, there was a post-credit scene. Actually, really, three seconds. And it didn't tell you anything. It's just the pteranodons flying around the Las Vegas skyline. Which is interesting, but maybe they could have also included the Ian Malcolm bit at the Senate hearing. Something to flesh it out a little more. So at the end, he says, I told you so. And I was like, you're right, man. Thank you. But it was cool. I I love interacting with people during movies. It's just like this podcast. You're getting humans that you would normally not talk because you don't know them. And you walk through your day-to-day life. But what brings you together is talking about movies or TV shows. And that was that moment there. So I said, yeah, you're right. And then I gave him our CKC card. And I was like, listen to our podcast. And then I walked away like Chris Pratt, right? (laughs) No. No, not at all. all No, I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) We've been up here too long. I know. Can we finish this podcast? (laughs) But I think it was worth it because it tells us a lot of things about the next movie. One... It's about the dinosaurs out there in the real world. According to this scene, Vegas is the closest section, which could be pretty fun because there's so many really beautiful buildings that they can just crush and annihilate. And it's going to have to include some other areas because we did see the Mosasaurus in the water. We've been told there will be more films. Trevorrow, who directed the first Jurassic World, but obviously didn't come back for this one, We'll be directing the third one. Oh, okay. And then producers Frank Marshall and Patrick Crowley came for the first Jurassic World, stayed for this one in addition to another producer, and they will be back again as well for Jurassic World 3. It's a pretty nice gig. I'd stay too. Pratt is also signed on. We're not sure about anybody else yet. They say the next film could involve dinosaurs being used by other companies for non-entertainment purposes. Agriculture, medicine, war. And Trevorrow says, I really like the idea this group of geneticists aren't the only people who can make a dinosaur. When you think of the difference between Apple and PC, the minute something goes on the open source, there's all kinds of entities and interests that may be able to utilize that technology. That's true. So that's going to come back in. When we saw the other people leaving who had managed to take something from this auction, it's going to be a problem. We saw that suitcase with all those DNA samples. That's going to be something. The fact that these dinosaurs are out in the free world, that can be something. Jeff Goldblum, I think, can be reintroduced at this point. Must be, right? Because 
Yeah, it would have been far-fetched to get him to again go out into another island. But now it's there in his world. Yeah, and like I said, we removed so many of the people that were part of this movie. We're down to kind of the core group moving forward. And I think to keep Dr. Henry Wu and Ian Malcolm, who were there from the very beginning, makes sense. Especially if you're going to so radically change so many of these other elements. But other than that, we'll have to wait and see. We don't really know. We'll have to wait till 2021, which hopefully, if our Clatchers are still on board, we'll still be doing Patreon. So Christina, to pay adieu to Ted Levine, who, if you guys don't know, you probably should by now, is the actor in... Wow, it, everything links up to Westworld. He was in the original Silence of the Lambs. He was the one that says it puts the lotion in the basket. Mm-hmm. He was obsessed with collecting dino teeth. So our rating for this movie will be from 1 to 10 dino teeth. I'm going to give it a 7.5, which is higher than the IMDb, 6.7, the Rotten Tomatoes, 60%. It's higher than what the critics gave Jurassic World 1, but I would have rated Jurassic World 1 a lot higher. In the nines, for sure. Probably a solid nine for me. Now, it sounds low in comparison to how I rate other things. As I said, I really do like it. To me, this is like a solid B-plus rating. And for everything we've already mentioned, they did so many things right. It was enjoyable just to go and be entertained by it. But I know that it's really just laying the pieces for the next one. Our two main actors, I thought, handled this great. Although maybe some of what they were written for didn't come to full fruition. The dinosaurs are never going to stop being fun for me. I could just watch them walk around Isla Nublar all day (laughs) and I'd be cool. Well, I'm on board with you. Actually, I'm right there with you. And if you guys don't know, we never discuss ratings until the podcast. So she has no idea. I have no idea. I'm going with 7.6 teeth. You always do that just so that you can be one tick higher than me. Listen, it's a summer blockbuster. And that's exactly what it delivered. We had the spectacles, dinosaurs, emotional feeling of a dinosaur dying slowly. By the way, can I say that scene when the volcano is reaching the edge? And they're leaving on the boat. I don't want to talk about that scene anymore. Well, (laughs) I kept waiting for the lens to move. And it just stood on that dinosaur. And I was like, oh my God, how long are they going to lament on this dinosaur dying? Holy shit. Chris Pratt, although they didn't let him really spread his wings, I still thought he was amazing. I did enjoy this movie. I would watch it again. And I'm going to tell my friends they need to go see it. Yeah, I would... Highly recommend it. Just understanding what you're going in for. Exactly what we, like we said, you're going in for a summer blockbuster. So let me uh, put you on tilt. We didn't discuss this, but uh, can you rate all the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies? Put them all in one basket and rate them for me. Yeah, well, I'm going to look at the IMDb ratings as I go through, which I'm definitely higher than. Jurassic Park 1, probably a 9.4, 9.5. Oh, you're going to rate rate them. Nice. Oh, is that what you want me to do? I was just going to say order. Oh, so yeah, remains the same because that's the first and best in my mind for the landmark of what it did. After that, I would go to Jurassic World 1, very closely behind that, probably around a nine. Next, I think I would kind of tie for Jurassic Park 2 and 3. They both had elements of something good going on that if they were jammed together, might have made a great movie. But 
split up. It really wasn't enough on either end to take me all the way through. But they would both get around an eight. And then we have Jurassic World 2, this last one coming in in last place with a 7.5. Wow. Okay. I'm pretty close with you. I have Jurassic Park 1, then Jurassic World 1, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World 2, and then Jurassic Park 2. The Lost World. Yeah. A lot of people did not like The Lost World. That's my order. Well, that'll take us to our MVO, Most Valuable Omnivore. Now, we struggled with this one because we have to include both characters and dinosaurs and all of the dinosaur grouping. I understand some of them are solely herbivores, but let's just go with it, okay? (laughs) So, Jason, you can give this to human, dinosaur, whichever you please. I'm going to go obvious. I'm going to go with blue. He reminded me of Achilles. He has so much personality. He's always there for me. I mean, Chris Pratt. I mean, Owen. (laughs) To the point in the end where he was saying, you know, come with us. And he was like, no, I'm going to go on my own. But I think that's going to swing back in their favor in movie three. To be honest with you, I don't have any character that really stood out specifically. I don't think they really leaned on characters because, let's be honest, it was about killing off the humans in this movie. Well, besides our two heroes and their two scientists behind them. Yes, I agree with you. Definitely, I'm not going to give it to a human. I was going to go blue as well, but in a very close second, and so I'll let them have it, is Rexy, the T-Rex. Like we said before, she had a couple of moments where Owen would have been dead (laughs) a few times if it weren't for her. Blue would have been dead if not for the blood transfusion that she was able to give. And she killed the antagonist. By the end of the movie, killed Eli, who, let's face it, we all wanted to see go down. She also stomped that bone, which was the last remains of Indominus Rex, and I'm hoping means will mean no more Indominus, no more Indoraptors, nothing of that nature in the future. Now, that could be false. Could they go back and get a piece of that Indoraptor? Probably. But maybe the estate blows up and they don't get it. I want to hold on to hope. And just an honorary mention to Stiggy, (laughs) because... He, she was amazing. There's just a few last things to mention. There was a couple of extras associated with this. Of course there is. It's a franchise. It's the Jurassic World experience. You have a whole website called MesraniGlobal.com. And I'm not sure. I think this was created after the first Jurassic World because it was all about that. And this guy who was in charge of that company, you know, that purchased Engine, And from there on out, they were Mizrani Global. I don't know how involved they still are as far as this movie and the future of Jurassic World. You know, yet more questions. They have all different categories you can click on, you know, as though it was a real place. They have career opportunities, go here for employment, read about our technologies, which could be interesting to tell us more about Dr. Henry Wu. and Programmable life is not the way of the future. It's what we do here every day. Nature has been cloning organisms for hundreds of millions of years. Compare the ancient abacus to today's supercomputers. That's how far InGen has progressed in the field of genetics. Tomorrow's InGen is actually right now. When Mezrani Global acquired our technology, it was a time when hardly anyone carried cell phones. The internet made a screeching sound when it connected. Pictures could take a minute or more to download. That was a completely different time, and we're a completely different company today. Scientific and technological advancement is accelerating at an exponential rate. 
We reinvent ourselves every cycle. That's what being tomorrow today is. Every facet of our process is revolutionary. With the Hammond XB20, we can decode the genome of any extinct creature in under an hour. No optics, no read length limitations, high throughputs, hundreds of trillions of calculations per second. The number of base pairs we can sequence in one hour is in the billions. How do we do it? Wouldn't our rival companies like to know? Engine is infinite possibility. The days of filling in the gaps of a dinosaur's genome with frog DNA are over. With the recent discovery that soft tissue preserved by iron chelators can produce gold mines of DNA, we can put the puzzle pieces together much faster than ever before. Combine that with all of the extractions that we have on our amber mines in Wyoming and Lapia, we're looking at a significantly large library of DNA samples. We're approaching 100% genome accuracy in dozens of species. And this is just step one in what we do. This is what's uh, really exciting. Genetic engineering, you know, designer life. It has innumerable applications across multiple platforms. It's not just knowing the sequence. It's knowing what each gene does. Isolating it, turning it on or off, deletion, insertion. Life is just a code. We're taking the code and we're using it for practical applications. InGen isn't just about de-extinction. It's about deepening our connection with the natural world. You will see InGen's impact in medicine, agriculture, and defense. There are no limits to what we can learn from these animals. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? That question has been answered. Chickens evolved from egg-laying manoraptor and theropods. There's no doubt the egg came first. It's time to move on to other questions. What comes next? And then there's a part that says visit Jurassic World. It gives you a profile, the news about what's going on there. I just think it's pretty amazing it's they pretty create cool. a whole website. I love when movies and TV shows do this. They're doing it more and more often now. Westworld does it, Mr. Robot. They also did something amazing for kids, because let's not forget, this is a big experience for that category. They made a mobile app called Jurassic World Facts that's a tie-in to the Mattel dinosaur toys. These toys have symbols on them that can be scanned using your iPad or whatever you're playing around on it with to collect facts about each creature. So that's how you can continue to play the game. Game, You scan it, you get more facts, you learn about the dinosaurs. Quizzed on it, there's also going to be or is very soon a video game called Jurassic World Evolution. We definitely have to look out for that. That would be fun for us to play. And a two-part VR miniseries, Jurassic World Blue, for Oculus VR headsets that supposedly depicts, from Blue's point of view, what's happening as the volcano's erupting on the island. Oh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm currently playing the mobile app game called ARK, A-R-K. It has nothing to do with Jurassic World or Jurassic Park, but there's dinosaurs there, and it just reminds me so much of our Jurassic universe. So that's all stuff that you can go and check out if you want more of the Jurassic World, and we'll keep an eye out for what's going to be coming in the future. Oh, quite an adventure. And admittedly, Christina and I were more critical with this movie, but we really did enjoy it. I will be watching it again, 
And as a matter of fact, we will be watching Jurassic World 1 again because I really want to see that after seeing this. I just want to relive that again. It's because it brings up all the nostalgia, right? Yeah. We said there were so many parts. I mean, when Maisie's struggling with that dumbwaiter is just like when Lex struggled with the kitchen cabinet in the <laughs> yeah, first one, the right. velociraptor coming in, the indoraptor tapping the claws on the floor, Eli hiding under the car at the end of the movie. Remember when Timmy hides under the truck? Yes. As the T-Rex, same dino, is crushing it. And the Brachiosaurus, such a good bookend. The first dinosaur seen on the island and the last. So it definitely makes you want to go back and relive. Yes, I think part of the reason we were critical is because we are so in love with these movies. We have a really high standard set. But at the end of the day, our final opinion, we loved it. Go see it. It's worth it. Yeah, I'm a little worried about Fantastic Beasts, too. Because, oh my God, we loved Fantastic Beasts so much. Oh, Very similar, you know, the Harry Potter world, so beloved, so difficult to ever measure up, got a reboot with Fantastic Beasts. If we look at it that way, two might struggle a little, but I actually think they work to do a lot of setup in one. That's true. Which is unusual. Oh my goodness, what a ride. I still have a stomachache. But 2021, they will be coming out with Jurassic World 3, and you bet your sweet ass will be reviewing that. We hope you enjoyed this movie review podcast. And if you like what you heard here, remember we do this every month on Patreon. You guys vote for what movie you want to watch that month, and then we podcast about it. So go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, and join the crew. Also, quickie update, keep an eye out on our channels. We will have another special podcast coming your way. And this one's going to be all about dogs. The ins and outs of dogs, how dogs came to be from their ancestors, the wolf, how humans and dogs ended up being man's best friend, what dogs are thinking based on their body language, and so much more fun dog stuff. We really think you'll enjoy it. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about us. Spread the word. Let them know that CKC is the perfect companion to your favorite TV shows, movies, and entertainment. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.